Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. morning. I know that things are a little different here at Jane Adams, and it can be a little jarring being a mobile church, getting moved around from site to site. Um, we kind of miss the high school, and it's freezing in here today. I'm fairly comfortable, but if I notice it's cold, some of you are like just frozen solid right now, right? So um, I, I apologize for how cold it is. Hopefully it will help you stay alert. I have to tell you, though, that of all the rooms that I preach to our church in, strangely, this is my favorite. I can't quite explain why, but I think it has to do with how closely packed the seats are. I don't know what it is about that cafeteria or the auditorium. I just feel like I'm looking out at this big, vast crowd. Here, I feel like we're together. And so I I was looking forward to this last Sunday here at Jane Adams. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve as lead pastor. And just for those who are aware of such things, I'll come right to the middle so it's fair and square. All right. And we've been working through a series on the subject of prayer. And prayer is one of those things that on the surface seems very simple. Just close your eyes and talk to God and listen to what he says back to you. It's not mechanically a very difficult concept. And yet I think many Christians would admit that prayer is one of the more challenging aspects of their faith journey with God. That they may be comfortable with the Bible, with serving others, with singing and all of that, but when it comes to prayer, many Christians will admit it's elusive. It's a, it's a thing that I can do, but I feel like every time I do it, I'm missing out on something. Like other people seem so in love with prayer, and I've never felt that way about it. I'll do it, but it doesn't warm my heart the way it seems to warm the hearts of others. So it's really my sincere hope that over the course of this series, you won't just understand prayer intellectually better, but that you will sense the invitation, the pull of God, that he wants for you to set aside time and space in your life to commune with him. That's really what prayer is about. And we took a little turn in our series, and last week I began a short kind of three-part thing where we're talking about when we pray, what should be fully engaged? Meaning, like in any conversation, don't you find it distracting when you're talking to someone, and while you're talking to them, their eyes are scanning the room for someone better to talk to? Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Excuse me a moment. I saw somebody better than you. You know, like that feeling of like, wow, you're not really here with me. And that's a very distracting and, I think, hurtful feeling. And I believe that when we talk to God, when we have conversation with God, it's just as important that we be fully engaged. Last week, we looked at our minds being fully engaged when we pray, that it's not a time when we shut the brain off and just get into the flow of something and let something else just carry us. This week, I want to talk about the engagement of the heart in prayer. And in many cultures and for many centuries, the heart was not looked at as the center of emotions. For many cultures, the intestines or the liver 
were viewed as the place from which our hearts and our emotions emanate. But just something about engaging your intestines in prayer or your liver in prayer doesn't resonate with me. I think it's a great idea that the heart which pumps out our life's blood is also the center, the wellspring out of which our hearts, our real lives flow. And I think the emotions rise out of what we would call the heart, that center, that core inside of us. I want to talk about the heart in prayer, and today I want to focus on one text in particular, 1 Samuel 1, 12 to 8. The Old Testament records for us a very interesting story about a woman, and it's interesting to me how often the Bible tells stories about ordinary people and gives us a peek into their very regular lives. It's not like many other holy books that record just a highlight reel of religious moments, but it begins by telling us very ordinary stories about very ordinary people. And here's a story about an anonymous woman named Hannah. And she was married to a man named Elkanah, who was a Levite. And they had a normal marriage. It was clear in in this text that Elkanah actually loves his wife. It wasn't just a relationship of convenience, but he truly loved his wife. And that was, that was somewhat rare in that day for a woman to have her husband express real emotion. And she had that. And they had a relationship, but it turned out that Hannah was barren. She was unable to have children. And in those days, that was a very serious issue because then the woman, if she were widowed, would have no one to care for her. The estate would be up for grabs after the man died. And so for families to be unable to leave an heir behind really was a serious matter. Lacking faith, Hannah's husband, Elkanah, took for himself a second wife named Penina. And Penina was fertile as Kansas soil. She was popping up babies. And Hannah, every time she got around this second rival wife, felt indicted in her barrenness, to to have to share a household with a woman who was able to provide for her family something that she simply could not. No matter how hard she tried, this this was a thing far outside of her control. And to make matters worse, the second wife mercilessly provoked Hannah about it. She would say things like, "Uh, excuse me, I can't keep talking to you. I've got to go look after my babies. And she would do things like this, which would just keep reminding Hannah, I can have children and you cannot. I have something you long for, which you cannot make yourself have. And so this woman, Hannah, was in terrible anguish. And though her husband continued to try to minister to her, she could not have her peace. There are certain kinds of anxiety and emptiness and struggle we feel in our hearts that are beyond the help of other people. No matter how hard they try, they can't touch that place in you that's broken because it's at the core of your being. It's not because someone did something. It's because deep down inside, something in you is not whole. It's missing, and you can't find that missing piece by yourself. So Hannah reached a point where she couldn't take it anymore. And on one of their pilgrimages to the temple in the city of Shiloh, she enters the temple and she falls on her face and begins to pray. 
And 1 Samuel 1, 12 to 18 picks up the scene there as she kneels to pray. <clears throat> she had just given her big prayer request, which we'll look at in a moment. But then here's where we'll pick up the story. It says that as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Eli was a high priest, happened to be sitting by the doorway watching this woman pray. And Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. I I would love to see the film when I get to heaven of Hannah praying because it had to be very animated for Eli to believe she was drunk. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You know, in the ancient world, most prayers were audible. It was an unusual thing to pray silently. And, and yet, every once in a while, we see this recorded that a person prayed in silence. But it was an unusual enough sight that when Eli watched Hannah praying, she was swaying about, flailing, beating her chest, moving all over. And she looked like she was very, very upset in her spirit. But when her mouth was moving... And no sounds are coming out. You know, you've walked past people like that on the street, usually in a city. And like nothing's coming out, but clearly they're talking to themselves. And you're like, uh-uh, crazy person. And you, you just feel like something's not right with that person. Why was Hannah praying like this that day? What drove a woman to enter the temple in full view of the high priest with complete disregard for the watching eyes? And she just poured out everything she had. Because I think there are times when what we're carrying around with us, when what we've been holding inside is so much that even though you suppress it and you bottle it away day after day after day, there comes a point in every person's life where they break. They just can't hold it in anymore. They have tried to manage it, but they just can't pretend. And one day, that bottled up darkness, that pain, That burden just comes bursting out. But for most people, I think we've learned that it's not safe to do that bursting out in front of other people. That other people won't protect our hearts the way we know our hearts need to be protected. And so we've learned that most people can be trusted with small things, but very few people can be trusted with the big things of our heart. So Hannah that day had a burden in her heart she could no longer contain. It was bursting out, but she also knew it was unsafe to speak those words aloud in the hearing of others. So she cried out in her heart to God, but she kept that burden quiet before the ears of others. 
If we scroll up just a couple verses, we read the actual prayer request. Someone's trying to reach you. If we scroll up just a couple verses, we see the actual prayer request, which Hannah lifted up. And listen to what she prayed for. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Here's what Hannah was saying. Lord, you know that the defining struggle of my life is this barrenness. That I have such a yearning to produce a child and I cannot do it. And there is nothing I can do to make that happen. And yet it has covered every aspect of my being. It's only the only thing that I want. Give me a child. And if you do it, I will give him back to you. And what she was making was what's referred to as a Nazarite vow. This child will be completely devoted to the service of God. And most people made a Nazarite vow of their children for a period of years. She was saying, you can have him for the rest of his life. If you will just give me a son, I will give him right back to you. And you can have him for his whole life. Does that strike anyone else as strange? I mean, when you read the Bible, you've got to pay attention a little bit. I'm like, what kind of weird prayer is this? Who asked God for a son just to go, and when you give him to me, I'm going to give him right back to you. Can you imagine if I said, hey, Johnny, can I borrow this pen? Here, thanks. There you go. That's weird. Why would someone in great anguish cry out to God for a son only to promise that the minute she gets him, she'll give him right back to God? Do you understand that it was not the experience of childbirth that Hannah longed for. It wasn't even a son per se which she wanted. But her barrenness exposed a deeper doubt and insecurity in her heart. It wasn't just that her body was not working in such a way as to produce children, but it carried such a profound significance in her culture that she was left wondering about her worth and value as a woman. And she was left wondering about the kindness and fairness of God. When a merciless rival like Penina is given child after child, and Hannah, who loves and is devoted to her husband, cannot give him one son, and she was left wondering, what kind of God do we have? What kind of woman must I be? That though this is the life-defining longing of my heart, The God I worship and pray to will not answer me. Do you understand that this was no small favor? She wasn't saying, I have everything now, I just need a kid. Would you give me a kid and then my whole wardrobe will be complete? It wasn't so trivial. She was touching on the deepest anguish of her soul. And some of us understand exactly where Hannah's heart is because we also have been carrying around a life-defining struggle. Something that is a piece of unfinished business. Something that touches at and exposes a very deep pain in our hearts. For some of us, those pains were opened up 
in the family we grew up in, through a traumatic childhood experience, through something that happened that made you realize, I have less than other people were given. And you've been carrying this around wondering what this says about you and about the God you follow. Hannah was asking for a son because she needed to understand once and for all, God, do I matter? And are you good to me? Most people cannot carry doubt and despair like that around for very long before it just bursts out of them. I understand very well that our past experiences with other people leave us feeling like it's not safe to expose that deep, life-defining struggle with them. But can I just challenge you about something? Some of us have not just closed our hearts off to others. We've begun closing our hearts off to God. The only being who has ever pledged unending love to us And we're in danger of closing our hearts off even to him because we've been so wounded. And our life-defining struggle is making us begin to wonder even about his goodness, his kindness. Let me just challenge you a little bit. How can we possibly have a relationship with God and not bring that life-defining struggle to him with emotional honesty? How can we possibly have any kind of real relationship with God and pretend that this issue doesn't define us? We cannot close our hearts off to God and hope to still keep walking with him. To know God is to open our hearts to him, to trust him, to be vulnerable with him, to take a chance on God and not listen to that voice in our hearts that says God cannot be trusted. There is no one who can be trusted if God cannot be trusted. And I want to tell you right now, in the midst of your pain and struggle, the last person you should close your heart off to is the one who has loved you the most. You know, as children, I believe that we're born naturally free with the expression of our feelings. Just watch a very young child. Usually in America, you got to start with three and younger. Because we ruin them by by age three most of the time, okay? But when you look at a very young child, what you see is the beauty of unfiltered emotion. When a child is upset, does he think to himself, I'm in church, I shouldn't scream? We experienced it just this morning. When a child is upset, the whole world is upset. Because there's no filter that says, control your feelings. There's just, it's like, Children are emotional camel cigarettes. There's no filter. You just, you go straight from the feeling to expressing it. There's no second layer in there that just says, um, think about who you're with, what context, what's appropriate. They just go. And there's something beautiful and pure in that freedom with which they express what they're feeling. But over the course of time, every child picks up negative experiences regarding their emotions. And little by little, we learn that not everybody cares for our emotions. We're shushed. 
We're disregarded. We're rejected. Our friends express embarrassment over us. They turn their backs on us. And little by little, we're left feeling strange with our feelings. Like, I feel these things and I try to tell people and they just look like, oh, awkward. And they turn away from us and they reject us. They turn their backs on us. And we're left feeling like feelings are not safe. You're not allowed to feel things. And if you feel them, definitely don't take the risk and tell others how you feel because they won't guard your heart. They will walk away from you. They will embarrass you. They won't understand you. I really believe that these negative experiences produce in us what we would call emotional insecurity. We're left feeling very unsure of ourselves whenever emotions take over. Everybody feels strongly, but not everyone knows how to wear those feelings in a healthy way. And don't be so sure that because you say, I'm fairly emotional, I'm in touch, don't be so certain that you're one of the healthy ones. We'll get to you in a minute, okay? Listen, most people I know really wrestle with emotional insecurity. I know this because somebody told me I have the spiritual gift of making people cry. So many people, when we're in counseling sessions, cry in my office. I go through a box of tissue a month, and there's just so many tears shed. And I, here's the thing I've noticed about so many who cry when we're talking. We're touching at things that really grip the heart. And there are moments of just really honest, beautiful emotion and connection with God where they just let it out and the freedom is coming. And I see it. I, it's almost like, like a horse I could hear galloping on the horizon. I know when that moment's coming. I feel it around the corner. And out come the waterworks and freedom is there. No more bottling up. No more denying. No more suppressing. Here comes the truth. And in that very moment when the first tear comes, do you know how many people have this immediate reaction? Oh my gosh. And they're embarrassed. They quickly, especially guys, you're like, oh my God, oh, air is so dry, I don't, allergies. They're so embarrassed instinctively by their tears. Others say, I'm sorry. I'm, there's either embarrassment or apology, both totally inappropriate reactions to tears. That's not your reaction to your tears. That's what everyone else trained you you should feel about your tears. You were told by others all your life, be embarrassed, apologize. You're making us uncomfortable. Stop it. We don't want to look at your face right now. Go cry somewhere by yourself. That's what others trained us to feel so much of the time. And so when you feel embarrassed about your emotions, it's not your own heart. It's you hearing all those other voices and saying, this is so embarrassing. What is embarrassing about crying? What is embarrassing about that moment of freedom when the things you truly feel confessed before a loving God produce a strong emotional reaction in you. And the thing about emotional insecurity is it very quickly leads to emotional insincerity. When you're uncertain and embarrassed and uncomfortable with your own emotions, the very next step is usually you learn how to manage and mask your emotions so that they become dishonest at the deepest level. I think emotional insecurity takes a couple forms. One form is being under-emotional. You know, I've met people who suppress or mask their true feelings. 
It's, it's very odd when something that should move the human heart happens, and I'm standing there watching, and I'm like, are you okay? And they're like, what? Yeah, yeah, whatever. And I think, okay, maybe you're a really cool customer. Maybe you're really tough, but maybe that's not really true. Maybe you've been so scarred by the open expression of your feelings that you've learned the safest approach is to act hard, to toughen your countenance, to make believe that nothing affects you. You feel nothing. Maybe you've even grown to regard emotions as unnecessary or as a sign of weakness. Oh, emotions, whatever. Feelings are nothing. Truth is everything. Feelings are nothing. Let me tell you something. Feelings matter for a great deal. Can I also challenge you about this? I believe most of us, our lives and our choices are driven more by feeling than principle. I'll be honest with with you about that. I think most of our lives are explained as a response to our feelings, not our beliefs. Emotions matter a great deal. And when we are under-emotional and in a practiced, intentional way, like, look, I don't get too worked up about anything. That's insincere because it denies the truth about what it is to be human. It's pretending that, some, that the scar tissue you collected was actually your natural skin, and it's not. It's a lie. And it's unnecessary because God will not treat you the way others have treated you. You don't have to toughen your heart in front of God because God will treat your heart safely. For those who believe that the best way to manage feelings is to pretend you don't have them. I love this passage of scripture, Psalm 62, verses 5 to 8. Let all that I am wait quietly before God. For my hope is in him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. My victory and honor come from God alone. He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. Oh, my people, trust him at all times. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. You know, what I love about this is some people are under-emotional because it's their natural, it's their natural disposition. They are sort of um, moderate personalities to begin with, and that's okay. What I love is that to be emotionally honest doesn't mean you have to be a spaz. Do you get that? You don't have to be a spaz. You don't have to counter your normal personality and be all of a sudden like, wow! You don't have to be different than you are, but what it says is even if what you manage is simply to wait quietly before God, there is no excuse for not pouring your heart out. Quiet or loud, if the heart is held back, You have no real connection with your Father. What he invites us in prayer every time, whether you're a loud person or a quiet, expressive or not, the heart cannot be dammed up and shut off. If your heart is guarded even from God, you are missing out on something profound because God is our refuge and he can be trusted. There's another expression of emotional insincerity, and that is being over-emotional. There are people who wear their heart on their sleeve, and because they are so quick to tell you what they're feeling, they truly are convinced they are emotionally very healthy. 
Oh, oh yeah, I'm totally emotionally okay because I can tell you in any given moment exactly what I'm feeling. Maybe that's true, but I want to give, and I'm not going to pick at those people who say they're wrong. What I will say is I'll offer this challenge. For the person who's very, very comfortable with their emotions, I offer this challenge. You are more than a tube through which emotions pass. You may be very comfortable with identifying what you're feeling, but you may have no understanding of why you're feeling that way. Why did this life response, why did this life event produce this emotional reaction? I know people tell me, yeah, that really pissed me off. I'm really angry. Okay, good. So you're, you're very in touch with your anger. Why are you so angry about it? Because? <laughs> That's not really an answer, brother. I mean, just being ready to say you're angry doesn't tell you you are emotionally healthy or emotionally honest. It just tells me you're a tube. Something flows in one end and it comes out the other. And all the while, nothing processes what's happening. See, I think I fall maybe on this side of the spectrum. I have the gift of gab. I can verbalize everything, even stuff that's not true. I can verbalize it so well. And as a result, sometimes I believe my own garbage. It's scary when you start believing your own garbage. You're like, wow, that sounded really true. (laughs) You're in the danger zone when you could start getting swayed by your own rhetoric. To such people who think that being very emotionally overexpressive is the same as emotional sincerity, I think God would say to them something like this, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but you know what's wrong? Their hearts are far from me. They're so ready in flowery language to tell me all the things they feel about me, but I know the truth. Their hearts are so distant, even as their mouths paint a very different picture. Emotional sincerity is not about suppressing the truth or over-projecting the truth. It's about living in the truth of your feelings. Really being in touch with what you feel and then understanding through the guidance of God why you feel what you're feeling. Let me share... That baby has no problem expressing her feelings, and I love it. Please keep her right here. It's a great illustration to the message. Here's the truth. Pain causes us to become uncomfortable with feelings which we should not be uncomfortable about. Feelings are simply a signal from our soul, from our heart, that something needs attending to. Feelings are a sign of life. That doesn't mean every feeling we have is validated or appropriate or righteous, but they tell us something important, and when we start ignoring them or distorting them, we do so to our own peril. Feelings are one of the great signals of distress in the soul, and we need to learn how to listen to what we're hearing. When I was a senior in high school, I was in AP bio class with one of my my best friends as my lab partner. His name was Tom... And I remember one particular day, our, our teacher, Dr. O, basically told us, we're going to go outside and do a little field trip on the campus of the school. We went out to a little clearing next to the school facility, 
And we were supposed to collect as many kinds of foliage as we could find. We were in a botany section of bio class. Well, I was in 12th grade, and I wasn't about to spend an hour collecting foliage. That just seemed like a real... And so it was a nice day. We found two big sticks, and Tom and I found a little clearing, and we began sword fighting. He was doing the whole pirate thing, and I was doing the ninja thing. It was like pirates versus ninjas before it was a thing. And we got really into it. And Tom usually is a fairly reserved guy, but he let loose. And I was really enjoying this new dimension of our friendship because I was watching Tom finally act like a kid. And we were going at it, and all of a sudden, something changed in Tom's countenance. He went, and he dropped his stick. He's like, and I'm like, come on, pick up your stick, pirate. And I was trying to goad him on, and he wouldn't pick up his stick. And finally, when he got enough of me, he looked at me with this really cold face and said, dude, Relax. Grow up. What I didn't realize was behind me, two girls had stumbled into our clearing. (laughs) And suddenly Tom felt very childish about what we're doing. I hadn't seen those girls, so I was still in full-on Peter Pan mode, just, ah, wow, and I looked like an idiot. I felt embarrassed after the fact, but you know what scarred me? I don't know why this day still has burned so deeply in my heart. But the way Tom's face looked at me, and he was not just embarrassed over himself, he was disdainful of and embarrassed by me. I was cramping his style. And there was this moving away from me, a rejection. Maybe I read more into it, than, but who cares? The point is, for me in my life, that was a very seminal moment in my emotional development. Who can explain why certain events touch you so deeply? I I can't write that rule book. I don't know why some traumatic things just roll off my back and other insignificant things scar me for years. Can you understand it? So for years after that, whenever I felt this rise of enthusiasm or childlikeness, whenever I felt playful and overexcited, I would get carried away, and in that moment I would see Tom's face and hear his disdainful voice, Dude, relax, grow up. And I can't tell you for how many years I carried that on my back. By the grace of God, anyone who knows me today knows I've gotten over it. I haven't grown up. I don't relax. I'm still a little baby in my emotional development. I'm thankful for that rescue from God. But I've got to tell you, for years, that little encounter and that clearing with Tom stiffened my countenance a great deal. It made me say things to myself like, I will never let anyone see me lose control ever again. I'm going to be the cool guy. I remember walking into AP Bio the next day, but what's up, Tom? Greetings class, whatever. (laughs) And you know, that was so unhealthy for me. I think other people can really damage us emotionally. Even the most well-intentioned people who love us, when we try so hard to explain the complexity of what we're feeling, haven't you ever felt the frustration of like, I'm trying somehow, but the English language isn't sufficient to get you to understand. How do I... And the hardest part is if you're in this love relationship with this person, if it's family, if it's romantic, 
then everything you say, the other person can't receive neutrally. It stings. You say, I feel lonely. What? You're saying I'm not enough for you? And there's this reaction that comes right away. So it's very hard to express what you really feel to someone who can't be neutral in hearing it. So even though they love you, it's frustrating trying to be understood emotionally because what you feel, it's like trying to describe what the color maroon looks like to a blind person from birth. You know, it's kind of like red, but darker. What's red? You just can't do it. It's, you're trying, but it's like stumbling in the dark saying, how do I get you to understand what I can't even put into words? Don't you wish in that moment that you could do a Vulcan mind meld just for a second? For like 60 seconds, I want you not to just hear my words, but enter my heart And for 60 seconds, I want you to feel everything I'm feeling. I can't describe it in words. You don't know what it's like to be me. I want you to feel me. You know that common phrase today, I feel you. You feel me? I don't think we feel each other. (laughs) I don't think we even know what that means. Can you imagine, though, in that moment, if you really could feel someone else? And just for those 60 seconds, as you watch their face and you see the dawn of understanding light up their eyes and they say, oh my God, I had no idea how alone you felt. I kept laughing it off. Come on, don't be like that. You know I love you. I had no idea how truly alone you felt. How distant I look from your eyes. I had no idea how much pain I caused you. I was just trying to toughen you up, son. I had no idea how rejected you felt by what I said. Can you imagine the impact it would have on our relationships if we were capable of letting someone into our hearts and feeling what we feel? That's why I've always loved these verses in Hebrews 4. Our high priest, Jesus, he has no trouble understanding what we feel. He felt everything in the human experience. He went through every testing we went through. And he emerged still honoring God. Because he understands us, look at verse 16. That's why we can then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. One of the most comforting things about praying to Jesus is that I don't have to use my words to describe to him what I feel. He already knows, even when I can't find the words, what it's like to be in my own skin. That's the great comfort we draw from Paul's promise in Ephesians that he makes his dwelling inside our hearts. He doesn't live next to us or with us. He lives in us. He knows already what we're going through that we can't describe even to the people who love us the most. And in that place of being known and heard and understood, we finally get the peace we've been looking for. Let me end it this way. Hannah, on her way out after this conversation with Eli, receives a benediction from him. It's typically what the priest would say to you after you paid him to say prayers on your behalf. She didn't have the money to pay him, so she was praying by herself But when this priest gave her his blessing, what she understood was today in this place, my heart having been laid bare and poured out to God, 
I was seen, I was known, I was heard and understood today. See, when she tried to tell Penina, your comments hurt me badly, she got no justice, no love, no grace. If you study this text a little carefully, even when she told her husband, her husband loved her. He gave her a double portion of food. He was trying to minister to her. But even when she told him, look, I can't even eat. I'm so distressed. Like a typical husband, he went, what are you so sad about? What do you mean? Why can't you eat? Why are you so sad about a kid? Am I not worth more than 10 kids to you? Making it about himself somehow. Even her husband who loved her was adult. He meant to help, but he couldn't. He was simply emotionally incapable of holding her heart. What a grievous error she would have made if she had depended on her husband to touch her heart. If you're sitting next to your husband, I want to tell you this right now. That man may love you for the rest of his life, but he cannot fill the emptiness in your heart. He's got an emptiness in his own heart. And only Christ will fill that. You turn to him, and he will fill it. Hannah walked away from that temple, and it says her face was no longer sad, and she was able to eat, her appetite being regained, a sign of peace returning to her spirit. And this is before she was given what she asked for. Very shortly after this, she would become pregnant. But she found her peace before she ever got pregnant. Because the peace God gave her was not the peace of a son, but the peace of knowing that he knew her, he heard her, he saw her, he understood her. And long before she got things that she asked for, she got the gift of God himself. So I'll I'll leave you with this. When we pray, what God wants from us is the truth about what we feel. Psalm 51.6 tells us, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You can lie to everyone else and even yourself about your feelings, but before God, there's no need. He wants truth. And when what he sees matches with what you say, he delights. In that moment, he says, finally, we can begin the process of making you whole. Finally, I can bring you to your peace. And that's his promise, that if we will be truthful in our inner being, he will teach us wisdom in the secret heart. He will help us to grow in our heart of hearts. Isn't that what we want? I think the place where we learn to be emotionally honest is only and first in front of God. Let me just tell you right now, it's not safe to learn to be emotionally honest with other people. Even the ones who want to won't treat your heart safely. And you can rant all day long, you can scream and yell, you can threaten, but you will never break through. Because no other person can understand what you're going through. But if you will be emotionally honest before your heavenly father and before Jesus, your savior, he will begin taking care of you. He will meet you in that very place 
that is so scarred and weighed your heart down. And you will start to find your peace. So I want to encourage you from now on, whenever you pray, and just as the praise team is coming up, I want to ask you to respond with me. Whenever you and I pray, let's learn to pray with our hearts fully engaged. There's no reason before God to guard our feelings, to protect our hearts. That's his job. It's what he promised he would do. Some of us are in very unsafe relationships right now where we can't be truthful even with the people we're connected to. Maybe you have friends, a circle of friends, and you can't afford to be truly honest with them because they will reject you. Maybe you're in a romantic relationship with someone and you can't dare to tell the truth about your feelings because they will embarrass you or reject you. They will turn their backs on you. God wants to work on those relationships. He wants to minister to you in that place. But before he can do that, he needs you to come to him directly in a place of emotional honesty. Tell him what you really feel and ask him to help you understand why you feel this way. Spend just a little bit of time in quiet reflection in front of him and you would be amazed the things he will show you about your own heart. So I want to invite us to do just that right now. And it's possible that some of us walked into this building just this morning with very strong feelings coursing through our veins. Start there with that feeling you carried into this room. And just quietly bring it and be honest before God about what you feel. And then wait just a minute and listen. Can we do that? Let's do that together right now. Hey guys, we pray to a God who knows every word even before it leaves our mouth. And the great comfort of praying to a God like that is we don't have to spend our time telling him what we feel. Like David in Psalm 139, we can say to him, examine my heart. Tell me what you see there. Tell me what's in my heart. I want to know. I can't just carry this around anymore, God. I want to feel peace, real, real peace again. And I can't find it on my own. I believe God wants to do this for many of us this morning. So let's just take one more minute and let's cry out to him for that peace. Let's depend on him. Let's go to him. Jesus, we thank you that you totally understand us. That we don't have to waste our time protecting ourselves from you. You above all others will guard our hearts You are safe. You love us. Long before we get the things we say we want, we can find our peace just being together with you. Knowing that in your presence, we are seen. We are affirmed. We are loved. 
we are understood. It's what we long for, God. And I pray you will bring each of us to that place. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.